Hey, everyone, we have a great show for you today, and it's kind of accidentally on trend with the way that things are going in the world. We have an amazing interview. Jason and I talked to Molly White, a longtime Wikipedia editor, but most recently, she's gotten pretty well known as the creator of the blog feed and the Twitter feed, Web3 is Going Great, where she breaks down the scams and the hacks and the pump and dumps and some of the questionable claims around the value of Web3 and crypto. It was a really fun conversation. It's a great back and forth, a really pretty in-depth and frankly, I think fairly measured and analytical exploration of this whole like mix them up madness world around crypto. But just in the days since we talked to Molly White, lots of the things we talked about are starting to play out in some form on the global stage. Obviously, we have all been following the conflict in Ukraine. All I do is look at Twitter all day, every day. And in the tech and Web3 and crypto world, there have been all kinds of developments and donations and speculation about how Bitcoin and crypto could or could not help out the people of Ukraine. Now, Molly White is a skeptic. And yet, with the situation in Ukraine, we seem to have found a couple of examples of crypto helping out. It's going to be a great episode. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Mercury. Question, how much time have you wasted managing your company's money? Answer, too much. Switch to Mercury at mercury.com. Real Good Foods. Real Good Foods is modernizing frozen foods and has become one of the fastest growing food brands in the U.S. Everything Real Good Foods makes is low in carbs, high in protein, and made from real food ingredients. Go to realgoodfoods.com and use code TWIST for 15% off. And our crowd. Our crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash twist. All right, let's get to some of these developments in the crypto world with respect to Ukraine and where it might actually be providing value and not in the pump and dump way. As of Monday morning, when I'm recording this, Ukraine had already received about $20 million in crypto donations. What does that actually mean? And can they use it? Well, let's break it down. On Saturday, Ukraine's official Twitter account and their vice prime minister tweeted the following, basically soliciting crypto donations. They said, stand with the people of Ukraine, now accepting cryptocurrency donations, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and USDT and then gave wallet numbers so that you could do these donations. Coindesk published an article earlier this morning tracking a bunch of these donations and withdrawal activity by Ukraine. Because remember, all of this data is on chain. And so we can see one of the big factors and conversations that we had with Molly White is like, it's great if you get Bitcoin and you have some sort of cryptocurrency in a wallet. But if all hell is breaking loose and the power's out, can you actually access it? It looks like if we are able to get insights on whether or when Ukraine withdraws funds, we'll find out. And we'll also find out if it's potentially dangerous that Russia can track these transactions as well. Data so far, according to Coindesk, shows that Ukraine has received about $4.2 million worth of Bitcoin and have withdrawn about $3 million of that in cold hard cash, one assumes, about $6 million of various crypto in their Ethereum-based wallet, including $1.1 million worth of Tether, which they hopefully cashed in immediately and hopefully is not sketchy, about $100,000 in USDC, which is Circle's stable coin. There are 
different reports and differing reports on how much of this money has been able to be withdrawn. So it's hard to say the actual amount, but it does appear that these donations may actually be finding their way to the Ukrainian people, which is obviously what we hope is happening. Also on Monday, Binance announced that it would donate $10 million in crypto to Ukraine and launched a crowdfunding portal to encourage users to donate as well. Over the weekend, the Russian art collective Riot helped form a decentralized autonomous organization, you know, a DAO, that raised $3 million in Ether for the war effort and humanitarian relief, and a separate wallet for donations to the Ukraine army run by the charity Come Back Alive has raised $6 million since its inception in mid-21. So here's where things get a little interesting in terms of decentralization and control, another big topic in the interview that you're going to hear after this. Donations are being distributed from the government's digital wallets, which is set up by the Kyiv-based crypto exchange Kuna, to other digital wallets before being spent. We don't know exactly why. It could be a safety measure. It could also be the kind of thing that ensures that money is getting to where it's supposed to go instead of being intercepted, for example, en route or used for things other than what it's intended for. According to Kuna's founder, the funds are being used to buy gas, food, and water for the people who are evacuating. So listen, like if this is working, that's great. And it does prove one of the sort of foundational promises of crypto, which is that it's a really easy and fast way to move money across borders. And all in all, it sounds like about $20 million in crypto has been raised for Ukraine from various sources. If you compare that to the largest GoFundMe ever, America's Food Fund, that raised $45 million to help people struggling with food insecurity during COVID and over a longer period of time. That doesn't mean that there aren't trade-offs and it doesn't necessarily, for example, when we look at the way this money is being distributed and it seems to be being funneled through the government, it doesn't necessarily mean that pure decentralization is the best use case. But it's a kind of a nice lead in into this conversation we had with Molly White about the trade-offs that there are dealing with crypto and what is the promise and when is it going to live up to the promise? Maybe this is the moment, right? These examples could either be exceptions or they could be an example of how cryptocurrency can create real value that's more lasting than some of the NFT shenanigans and questionable consumer use cases that Molly covers on Web3 is great. So without further ado, Molly White from Web3isgoinggreat.com. And in case it's not obvious, we talked to her on Friday just as Russia was starting its invasion of Ukraine. So these are not, unfortunately, topics we could talk to her about, but I think you'll get the larger gist. Here we go. We're live and we are super excited today. We're going to be having just a pure fun, but also I think future analysis conversation with Molly White who mm. runs the Twitter handle and newsletter articles blog. This is so like legit and old school, the blog called Web3 is going great. Her mm. Twitter, ha Twitter <laughs> handles are name. at Web3 is great and at Molly0XFFF. And many uh, of us of a certain vintage, if you will, have made the comparison between Web3 is going great and the old company from the end of the glory days of the dot-com boom mm. because it has that same vibe where it's just tracking the things that seem to be cratering to earth like meteors yeah i mean people are trying to make sense of web3 if mm -hmm. you criticize web3 
uh, you will get ratioed, get harassed, an army of people if you make even the most modest criticism of, hey, should this project be worth $10 billion with three developers working on it? Uh, that makes no sense and zero revenue. Or should this company have raised $100 million with just a white paper? Makes no sense. And when I put out those even modest criticisms, uh, mm -hmm. warnings, if you will, mm -hmm. with the ICOs, I got absolutely demolished. Of course, I was right. And now all well, the legal action against ICOs is coming. And I think we'll see something similar with NFTs. Doesn't mean NFTs are not real technology. Just this thing is polluted with grifts. And so uh, like uh, to a level we have never seen. A absolutely. Like at least in the dot-com boom, they were publicly traded companies cratering, but not just sort of like this is a remarkable compendium of scams. Really, um, in, in a lot of ways, not completely, but a lot of ways. I'd love By the to way, talk. the Nodies are thrilled Good. that we're going to talk to Molly talk. White today. Oh, we're going to, oh, she's here? Oh, I was about to say, I'd love to meet this founder of this website. Well, we should totally get her on, like, right now. Pop her oh. up, boom! <laughs> Ask and you shall receive. There. Hey, welcome, Molly White, <laughs> as opposed to Molly Wood, uh, my co-host. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Molly, where did you come from? How did you start doing this? I mean, I've tell been... us, by the way, that you are a Wikipedia god. So I assume <laughs> that there's some. <laughs> wow. I, I, know. I know. Um, yeah. I mean, I've spent a long time um, sort of gathering knowledge and stuff online as a member of Wikipedia. That's sort of where I got my start in sort of encyclopedic coverage of things. Um, I'm also a software engineer by trade. And so it was a little hard for me to escape the Web3 conversations that were happening towards the end of last year. I had heard about, you know, Bitcoin and there is sort of the 2014 boom and then the 2017 boom of, of cryptocurrencies. And, you know, as a techie, I sort of was aware of those things, but uninterested uh, largely. But as sort of Web3 started to come about, uh, you know, recently, the sort of new term, I started to see it sort of broadening very <laughs> sort of frighteningly. Um, and so that was when I sort of started to see it say like, maybe I should dig into this because, you know, just because I don't like something doesn't mean I need to necessarily speak out against it. But when it starts to sort of affect the common person, and I see friends get sucked into it, and I see fellow software engineers start to think that this is the future of the web and that kind of thing, that's when I sort of started to pay attention to it. How much time have you wasted managing your company's money? Come on, we know it's too much. Well, Mercury is here and it lets you manage your money the same way you manage your startup really well. With Mercury, you can get FDIC insured bank accounts and you can issue physical and virtual debt cards in just a few clicks. Plus, you can exchange currency right from your Mercury dashboard and sending domestic or international wires like we have to do all the time with contractors and partners is super easy. Poche Ordonez is a Mercury customer and she is the founder of a startup called AirPal. She says Mercury saved her employees tens of hours a month reconciling expenses. How do they do that? Well, Mercury lets customers sort transactions by amount, name, keyword, date range, all that good stuff. Plus, their virtual debit cards have custom management features which makes it easier for Hoshe's teammates to spend the way they want them to spend, right? 
So you could get back to working on the important stuff. And here are some reasons why you're going to love Mercury. The UX is beautiful and so easy to use. The onboarding is so quick. It's going to take you just a couple of days instead of the incumbents, which take weeks. On top of making it easier to manage your money, Mercury also helps your startup get more of it. So here's your call to action. Mercury Raise connects founders to quality investors from pre-seed to series A. Just head to mercury.com. To get started in minutes, all banking services provided by Evolve Bank and Trust. Uh, for me, it's these crazy uh, dinner conversations are the most annoying part. Um, tell me, when did this launch and what has the reaction been to it? So I launched the website in mid-December. Uh, I think it was like the second week of December. Um, and the reaction has been really great. Uh, people, I, I expected it to just be one of my sort of dumb little software projects that like gets, you know, 10 hits and then no one really pays attention to. And I just sort of keep doing my thing. Um, but it actually took off a lot more than I expected it to. I think it sort of filled a niche a little bit of, you know, people seeing these scams, you know, on Twitter or the occasional news article or whatever, but not getting a great sense of quite how prevalent they really are. Also, not totally understanding them, right? I mean, because the value here is that not only are you doing this public service of saying, this was a scam and now it's gone, or this looks like a scam, or this was a very, very bad decision by the Associated Press, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it's really, it's your deep understanding of this technology that lets you explain it in a way that isn't easy to dismiss at the dinner party as like someone who just doesn't get it. Yeah, I think that helps a lot. Um, although you would be amazed at how many people are willing to dismiss, you know, people who do understand it, even people who be understand it much better than I do. Um, yeah. I think just, you know, oh, you don't understand, you need to do more research is very common in the, uh, in the field. It's very true. They're always willing to send you the research. That's so nice. Let me dig up some articles and send them to you because you obviously don't know what you're talking about, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> so before we do the greatest hits of like things you found that were the most egregious, because now you're becoming, I would assume when you create a publication like this, you're now becoming the nexus and the super router of all grifts. So people must be sending you tons and tons of, hey, look at this, or you might want to turn over this rock because it's pretty gnarly under there. But before, before we get into that, um, I'm curious, wh when you look at the space, are there things that you think are on a technological basis, because you're a developer, are inspiring, interesting, important in the collection of technologies known as Web3? Because there certainly are some things there that are noteworthy, maybe even important, or perhaps even inspiring. I mean, I think what I would say about that is there are a lot of technologies that have been sort of grouped into this Web3 umbrella and sort of repackaged as this fancy new future of the web that are not new. You know, mm. we've had decentralized hosting for a really long time. You know, the, the internet kind of started that way. Um, that's nothing new. You know, we've had ledgers, you know, and databases and things like that. We've been able to send money to people through the internet for a very long time. I think those are all very important. I think Merkle trees are great. You know, I think those things are great, but they're not, they're not new to Web3. Mm. Um, the things that are new to Web3 are cryptocurrencies, you know, speculative currencies based on the blockchain. I don't think there's a future in those. I frankly don't. Um, mm. And I think that trying, you know, the majority of what Web3 is, is trying to take, you know, some technological problem and sort of slap a blockchain on it and then get a couple million dollars from VCs. Um, Few of those projects actually benefit from the blockchain, aside from the fact that it attracts VC investment. Um, most of them could probably be implemented better 
with a different database and, you know, a different structure. And if they want to be decentralized, if that's the goal, then go for it. You know, if you want to be immutable for some reason, go for it. But mm. the fact that there's a token associated to it or, you know, uh, a speculative currency is is not a beneficial thing. And I don't think it will continue. Uh, the enthusiasm for these projects, um, you know, it, it seems to be tied to when you bought the coin and at what price. So what we've done is we've taken objectively what would be considered an inferior technology in many cases, a, an immutable database that you can't change is not a good feature in almost 99% of applications, being able to change the database if somebody puts something, I don't know, confidential in it, or etc, would be a, a necessity uh, in, a, in a in a society uh, that's functioning, and peer to peer and, and um, nobody being in charge also is a liability in, in almost the overwhelming uh, cases. So I'm curious in your mind, the how much of the enthusiasm is useful idiots on one side who are got caught up in this mania versus grifters who are specifically pumping this technology to the bag holder useful idiots because they paid one penny for it and it's worth $100. And then how if you put this in another the third group, early true believers who actually are technologists who believe this technology is important. If you were mm -hmm. to bucket those what is the state of web three today in terms of percentages of those three groups? Or do you think there's other groups in there that are important to note? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, there are definitely people where it's really clear that they're grifting. And then there's a lot of cases where you, it's really hard to tell if they're a grifter or if they actually believe in it, or if maybe they have too much money sunk into it. And so they need to be overly positive about it so that they can try to, you know, get their money out. You know, I, I feel like the true believers are, um, somewhat less common these days. I don't see them as much. I mean, they, they definitely exist and their talking mm. points have been taken on by a lot of people who are very deeply invested in Web3. But um, oftentimes when you actually sort of push those people on, well, why do you need to have a decentralized system here? Or how do you plan to account for the, you know, the negative parts of decentralization or, you know, those things that then those, those things all sort to sort of fall apart. The people, you know, there are definitely true believers out there and they don't tend to be the people who are, you know, shilling NFTs. Um, they tend to be, you know, the Bitcoiners and the Monero people and, you know, those folks. Early true believers. Yeah. So are we still in a position where there are, you know, six to 100 people who actually really understand how this technology works and everybody else thinks they're going to make money on it? I mean, you still have people sort of casually saying, well, like, this is better on chain. And yet we have yet to find a thing that is legitimately better on chain versus all of this kind of smoke and fire about tokens. Yeah, well, I've said this before. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a unique space. It's not unique in this way, but it is unusual in that in order to say that you truly understand Web3, you have to have a deep understanding of technology, of law of economics uh you know sociology you know there's so many things in play when it comes to building token economies and building on the blockchain and you know decentralized structures and all these things that it's very tough to to say confidently that you have a true understanding of all of the ways that web3 sort of interacts with the space it is difficult i would say to understand the technology in some cases but i think uh, a lot of Web3 projects sort of play on people's lack of understanding and 
sort of willingness to accept that it's a difficult to understand uh, technology. And so people, you know, if they have a, if they're seeing something and they think, well, that doesn't seem quite right. There's sort of a willingness to say, well, I probably just don't understand it and I need to go do more research, mm. but I'm sure it's fine. You know, people, people are sort of encouraged into that by, by the prevailing belief that this is very difficult to understand. Well, you also say it so gently, they're encouraged into that when in fact, the response usually is, no, no, you're the dumb dumb, you just don't understand. And like you're saying, <laughs> if you push really hard, I mean, there are literally people already in our chat saying like, it's just because you don't understand. And you're not a serious software person. But if you did, you would see how obvious it is. And I'm like, and yet, you can't really explain how obvious it is. I would say that, you know, people should in, in a normal world, people would be very concerned if they're trying to sell something that they can't explain to people. Like that mm. should give people pause or VCs pause. You know, if, if you're investing in a company and the, the CEO can't tell you why it needs a blockchain, like that should be like a record scratch, you know, pump the brakes moment. And yet it's common in the Web3 world right now. We all know how hard it is to eat healthy when you're working crazy hours like I do, startup founders do, anybody in our industry. But thankfully, Real Good Foods is here to help. They make nutritious foods more accessible to improve all of our health. And they're one of the fastest growing frozen food brands in the U.S. In fact, they just went public back in November under the ticker RGF. So congrats to the team on the IPO and making great products. They got a ton of food you love. Mexican, Italian entries, pizza, breakfast sandwiches. I tried the breakfast sandwiches on the pizza. Amazing. All 100% grain-free, low in carbs, and high in protein, which is what I'm looking to do in my diet. And it's made from real food ingredients. Real good foods is perfect if you're trying to cut back on carbs, get more protein from real food. Yeah, or if you just need a convenient and tasty option without sacrificing your health. Or maybe you're just trying to eat healthier in general. This is the perfect solution for you. I like to keep it on hand just in case uh, I need a late night snack or I forget to order lunch. And they're now available in the freezer sections of Costco, Walmart, Target, and most grocery stores nationwide. And a big goal of theirs is to support local food banks across the U.S. by donating 1 million nutritious meals. Nicely done. So go to realgoodfoods.com. Use the offer code TWIST and you'll get $15 off. You can order directly from their site. Learn more at realgoodfoods.com and follow Real Good Foods on social. Well, I mean, the the bigger fool there, find a bag holder is so prevalent in this and it's such an effective technique that when the pumps happen and literally there's countless rooms on signal pumping coins and, you know, uh, all kinds of uh, financial malfeasance going on here, that even if the project did have good intent, did have great technology and did have great founders, they, they quickly seem to get taken over by these grifters who, who pump and, and dump them. I was wondering, and the toxicity, I think was a great point, Molly. If anybody questions anything, Bitcoin toxicity is an explicit philosophy that's been codified at the Bitcoin Miami conference. There was somebody advocating it is our duty that anytime anybody questions Bitcoin to like attack them relentlessly on mass. So they're in signal groups or on discords. And if Molly or I or you say something negative about Bitcoin, they will drop the link in there and say attack. Uh, like, and so I don't know what they call those social media attacks. You're brigading. women, so you experience them every day. Yeah, yeah we're, still, we're like, yeah, it's brigading. Yeah. It's brigading. Okay, yeah. Thank you. I don't experience brigading because RIPR mentions again. Well, no, I mean it, they don't brigade guys because yeah, it's we they they're not like uh, immature misogynistic assholes. Uh, <laughs> But th these are these people who are doing it are immature, misogynistic assholes. But 
it is a it is a specific technique which shows you molly white what their intention is it's to squash dissent but they can't squash your dissent because you're in this for a noble and playful fun reason it seems so i don't get the sense that they could stop you which makes you just the perfect foil for all of this um on the website for people who haven't been to it uh web3 is going great.com there is a filter you get to drop down the filter and you can categorize things molly cares deeply about the environment i'm sure she'll want to talk to you about that but one that i saw miles away for the last decade and i've been bringing it up is wash trading or painting the tape uh there's a number of terms for creating fake trades to manipulate markets you have a drop down for wash trades and you've been uh looking at this in nft specifically which is a great place to do wash trades explain to an audience of neophytes what a wash trade is and what the damage it can cause so wash trading at least in nfts involves um creating another wallet another cryptocurrency wallet that is not directly tied to you you know you might have one that's publicly known to be owned by you you create another one that is not known to be owned by you um, and then you do a trade where you sell your NFT or, or whatever it might be to that cryptocurrency wallet for some amount of money, but it's actually just you behind the scenes transferring money between two wallets that you control. Um, mm -hmm. And in doing so, people from the outside see this and they don't know necessarily that you are the one who controls that wallet. And they say, oh, you know, someone thinks this JPEG is worth $100,000. You know, maybe it is. And uh, it, it's basically a way to artificially pump the price of these NFTs. And we've seen some really high profile examples of it. I'm thinking of Melania Trump. That's a good one. Uh, Melania yeah. Trump <laughs> yeah, recently did it with just her. happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she tried to sell uh, like an NFT of a watercolor painting of her. And I think there may have been a physical hat involved, maybe. <laughs> Not really sure. Um, <laughs> Be best. But someone did a, uh, a bit of a deep dive into the actual blockchain transactions and they were able to uncover that looks a lot like Melania Trump just bought her own NFT. Yep. You're bullying me for my <laughs> NFT. Don't bully NFT. Be best. Be best. Uh, that's a great grift. I mean, I it's mean, it so That's just brilliant. phenomenal. Like, and it takes advantage of sort of exactly the benefit <laughs> the, yes the immutable, it's practically built in <laughs> it's basically right. it's built like in. you can't exactly. do this with stocks because it's not like robin hood trades or e-trades are published underneath the stock right i mean maybe for large insiders but not for the public so you could li I imagine if you could buy you know some spac like joby aviation which i, I love that company I, I think it's a great company but if under the Joby stock ticker on Google Finance or Yahoo Finance, it showed my trade, everybody else's trades. Uh, and then I was going back and forth trading it with myself to make people think that this is like got volume it doesn't really have. When you see that volume, uh, Molly White, that is an indication of stability and a vibrant market as well. So not just you're upping the price, you're showing people that, hey, if I buy this, I could get out because look at how, this thing is traded 20 times in two weeks. It's mm -hmm. going to trade right. 200 times in the next month. I'm good. I'm not the bag holder. Look, but those 20 trades represent one trade, an insider trade. Yes. And just because someone will buy that NFT doesn't mean they might buy your NFT in the same project when you want to cash out. Mm. So it seems like there are a couple of categories of grift here. There's the, the very specific on purpose kind. And I mean, we don't even know to what extent it's on purpose. Like maybe nobody wanted Melania's NFT and she didn't want to be embarrassed. So they did the the wash thing. So there's on purpose. There's maybe like, uh oh, I biffed it. And then there seems to be a category that I'm calling the ding dong celebrity NFT grift. 
which is just like where they pop something up. Uh, the most you know recent one, I think, is Deer and Fox, uh, the Sacramento Kings player, at least that I saw on your site and Twitter feed, where like this NFT project went up and then a bunch of people bought it. And then he just stopped doing it, but didn't refund the money. Like what, what happens in those cases? Are people just in over their heads here or not making their money back? Like, what is that? That's I the mean, rug would, pull, right? Yes, that the would what? be a rug yeah. pull. Um, that's the I, rug pull. Okay. But is it an on purpose rug pull? That's a great question. You know, it's hard to say if he decided, you know, I'm going to make this cool NFT project and I'm going to scam my fans. Like it's possible like, that he went not. into it with that. Right. But yeah, I, I would suspect not. But it's really hard to say. I mean, you know, a lot of his reasons for abandoning the project are kind of questionable. You know, like he is talking about how he's so overwhelmed with the NBA season that he doesn't have time for this NFT project, which I am sure it is exhausting and overwhelming to be in the NBA. Like, I am not questioning that. But, but it's hard to tell people. <laughs> well, and it's, yeah, it's hard to tell what he specifically is doing. Like, I don't think anyone is under the impression that he, the basketball player, is like coding up the smart contracts behind the scenes or like drawing the fox you know jpegs i don't think that's quite what anyone expected and so i'm not sure why he suddenly decided he needed to sort of dip out of his own project mm -hmm. i would say and there's a couple of those ding yeah, dong celebrity I, dips i would yeah. look at them as reckless indifference like you if you're going to take the public's money you have an obligation to be considered in that so if not outright fraud and you intended it you have an obligation if you take hundreds of thousands millions of dollars even if the people know that the project might go under that would be like me selling i don't know non-refundable tickets to a conference and then you know like hey the conference isn't happening and you're the bag holder sorry exactly uh, you, you're you kind of have the obligation i hope that these people sue on mess have there well, been a lot of lawsuits an, yeah that's kind been of an interesting thing i've noticed is that there seems to be this really prevailing you know belief among people who are running web three projects that like normal laws just don't apply um <laughs> oh. you know laws around fraud oh, so around true. disclosing if you have a you know if you're pumping a project up and you have a financial investment in it copyright law is a big one where people is like copyright just doesn't apply for some reason because it's on the blockchain and people are like what mm -hmm. no that's not true at all I think, you know, the legal system is a very trailing thing. It takes a really long time to file a lawsuit and you need to have some capital to be able to put that in there um, or to file a lawsuit, you know, and uh, you need to be willing to go through the enormous uh, cost and pain and time that that requires. So I think it'll be a while before we start to see the actual outcomes of lawsuits around, you know, pump and dumps and uh, these, you know, rug pulls and things like that. But I think it is coming. You know, we've seen... There's a couple of lawsuits that have been filed, class action lawsuits against celebrities like Kim Kardashian uh, is facing one for basically pumping up a token and then, you know, the token crashes and the investors are left with nothing. Um, so I think we'll see more of that. And I'm really curious to see how those actually play out. It's time for another R-Crowd deal of the week. Right now, you can join R-Crowd's investment in Shift. Shift combines AI and fintech to automate the moving experience. We all know moving is the worst, right? And according to the deal memo, so far, Shift has helped over 200,000 customers move across 68 different countries. Shift connects users with verified movers to help them afford their move. 
with buy now, pay later financing, or as we say in the industry, BNPL. Well, you can invest in Shift now at rcrowd.com slash twist today. Go read the deal memo, get all the details. And then if you decide to invest, just go to rcrowd.com slash twist today and you can invest all over the world. Companies like Shift are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes many of these companies. Then they select the ones with the greatest growth potential and bring them to you from personalized medicine to the $110 billion moving industry. Our crowd identifies innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest, and that's early. So here's your call to action. If you're an accredited investor, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash twist, and then you can review the current deals. That's OURCROWD.com slash twist to sign up for free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having been an expert in this area, the way it goes down is about two or three years after, you know, everybody loses their money, either uh, an attorney general in a state that wants to make a name for themselves going up against another uh, a new technology, because this happens across all new technologies, will say, oh, I found three people in my jurisdiction who lost their money and some, you know, folks in, you know, Sarasota, Florida, whatever. And the attorney general files the lawsuit. And then other attorney generals realize, oh, well, I have six constituents because here's the list of people who are bag holders. And then all of a sudden you get multiple attorney generals and then uh, SEC gets involved and, you know, whatever. And all of a sudden, and you see that with the ICOs, all these ICO lawsuits, the XRP SEC one predates the ICOs. There's a lag of probably three years. So we're in the middle of the ICO ones, but nobody talks about the lo- those lawsuits. The NFT and the, the next ones will be you know, 2023, or something like that. But we have the toxic clip. I think we should play this and get Molly White's reaction. And you just check out every single one of Elon's tweets. And man, you just see a bunch of Bitcoiners going at him. And there's no other way, right? So not only do I think Bitcoin toxicity is important, I think it's absolutely necessary. And if you're against Bitcoin toxicity, you're against Bitcoin. And if you're against Bitcoin, you're against freedom, period. I mean, wow. it's a cult, Molly White. How your, could that your reaction. end badly? That's incredible. Um, oh my God. I, I Did I make the site? Anyone... Is my submission going to be on the site? <laughs> I mean, I can't see how anyone who's involved in Bitcoin for any good reason uh, can see that and be like, yes, this yes. is my community, you know? That's incredible. That was, by the way, Nico ZM, the founder and CEO of BitVolt, a Bitcoin Mm. mining hosting startup that helps clients secure their mining hardware, talking about people shouting down Elon whenever Elon tweets about Dogecoin. And uh, and also like any the rhetoric that's like you're against freedom, like you're just asking for that to escalate to absurd degrees. That's absolutely. You hate puppies also. (laughs) You can't explain it. Right. Like you again, you cannot tell me why. And, you know, at, for fairness and journalism purposes, I feel like I have to say there are all these people on the Internet and elsewhere and even in our chat saying a lot of people only see the bad side. I'm quoting from someone, one of our noted gang. A lot of people only see the bad side without looking at the potential of the underlying technology. And what did people say about the Internet when it was first invented? Now, Bitcoin and the blockchain have been around since what the mid 2000s at this point, it usually takes about 10 years for a consumer technology, at least to find a market. Molly White, what don't we understand here? Yeah, I'm still waiting for someone to find me a good use of the underlying technology. Um, Hmm. People say this a lot. That's like, 
oh, you are like the person who was the naysayer when the internet was first invented. And, you know, look what, you know, you're going to be eating your own words in 10 years. Um, Maybe, you know, that's sure that's possible. Uh, But when the internet first came to be, there were so many things that the internet had the potential to unlock. And sure, there were negative things that it could unlock. It certainly has. But with blockchains and, you know, this sort of Web3 shift, I don't know what potential it's unlocking. And it seems a little bit unbelievable to me that people can say that this is going to be the future and you just are, you know, it's still early and you just don't understand it, but they can't really come up with any compelling use case for it. Let me give you my defense of Bitcoin. um, And you tell me if it makes any sense. I think Bitcoin is a good store of value. The system has existed for over a decade and has not been hacked at its core. And if you uh, want to have money that is uh, easily storable in a place that is not as easily accessible, you could put it into Bitcoin as a store of value. Uh, It might appreciate, but putting out the appreciation, if it was even just stable uh, or modestly increased like the stock market does, um, it's a good place to, you know, like uh, gold, uh, or diamonds have a store of value that is digital and easy to trade. Uh, is, is store of value in your mind completely irrelevant or just a minor use case? Because people are using it for that. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a primary use case. Most people aren't putting, it feels like most people aren't putting their money into Bitcoin and saying, I hope this remains the same in 10 years. Um, I would argue that the history of Bitcoin also hasn't been very friendly to the idea that it's a good store of value. You can sort of pick two points on the line and say, look, you know, then and then it was the same amount. And so anyone who invested right then and took it out right there probably didn't lose any money uh, Mm -hmm. or make any money. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it's been wildly volatile. Uh, Most of these cryptocurrencies are. Um, And so as long as you're not hoping to be able to obtain the same amount of money you put in, uh, you know, at any particular point in time, then go for it. You know, why not? Sure. Um, But but, which can be said of gold, gold fluctuates in value too, but okay. So I I think it's a reasonable, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Uh, Some people like to hold some of it as a a store of value, you know, against economic collapse, right? But again, that's a very... But if the economy collapses, that's that's one thing I really don't understand is is people are talking about Bitcoin in this sort of Mad Max scenario where like the world is on fire and everything's Mm -hmm. collapsed and we're all, you know, out there with, you know, sticks and trying to make campfires and stuff. And they're like, but I'll have my Bitcoin. And it's like, what? You know, you're yeah. going to have apples what? Apples will work better. It's not, it's you not want a to coin. have a dozen apples. Those have yeah, more coins. Like I don't want yeah. gold in that scenario either. I don't know what I would do Some with potatoes gold would be good. Right. Yeah, I exactly. I want cans like, of beans. Yeah, cans scenario. of beans. That's well, actually where cans I invest my money for a stable bean coin. is cans of bean beans. Coin. That gets to kind of exactly the, the, you know, the blog post that I've been working on for two weeks, which is that on top of all of that, as a store of value that doesn't necessarily need to exist, it's environmentally indefensible. And your tagline on your website is like, you know, this is the, like the world is on fire and it's pouring gasoline on it or something. I don't I need to pull it up the exact. Yes, definitely not an enormous grift that's pouring lighter fluid on our already smoldering planet. Like, I remember when my friends were mining Bitcoin and then stopped because the energy, the literal, the power bill, right, that my buddy Trent got was higher than the what the bitcoin was worth and that you could even argue that the evolution of the technology because it was so energy intensive 
destroyed the entire original premise, which is that it's creatable by anybody. It's totally decentralized. It's completely democratic. And now on top of this, you have a scenario that has only increased in energy consumption and only seems to exist as a potentially dubious store of value or short-term, hugely profitable growth. Absolutely. I mean, that's how proof of work works is Mm -hmm. it has to be energy intensive or it doesn't work. And it has to be increasingly energy intensive or it doesn't work. And so 10 years ago, mining Bitcoin on your home computer, you know, it was reasonable. You could do that. It might bump up your energy bill a little bit, but like kind of negligible. These days, it's not even possible to mine Bitcoin on your home computer uh, without joining a mining pool. And, you know, you have to basically pool resources to, to compete with these extremely sophisticated pieces of equipment that are running in these huge mining farms, you know, next to power plants in China or Kazakhstan or, uh, you know, Russia or various places. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, some Where of those they places had to have migrate in search of cheap down, energy exactly. and found a lot of coal powered cheap bootleg, energy. Bootleg energy is always good too. If you could steal it, like in oh, China, they were go. basically steal stealing it. it. That, that worked pretty well. Uh, you know, for, I guess they, I'll give one more counter here. If you're in a authoritarian country or a country where it's not stable, uh, it does seem to me that a store of value that is not controlled by Venezuela, El Salvador, you know, Saudi Arabia, China is does have some value in the fact that you can do it just by memorizing, uh, you know, a couple of words and unlock your Bitcoin anywhere in the world is super valuable to those people. You wouldn't argue against that use case, would you? I mean, I would. (laughs) I I do. I do think it is valuable for people to have, you know, for people in those situations to have a store of value. And I don't think that there are great solutions to that at this point. I don't mm. think it's great that their store of value is enormously beholden to, say, the U.S. stock market. And so, mm. you know, right now, if you look at the Bitcoin value and you look at the stock market, it's kind of, you know, Perfectly following correlated. along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, those people are, you know, being exposed to different risks, um, probably not, you know, the same as the risks that they're facing with, like, the banking system in their own country. But, um, mm. you know, they have to be... Uh, there, there are these sort of other issues involved. There's also major issues around actually using that store of value that they have. So if you have, right. you know, we saw this with the Canadian trucker convoy recently. They uh, were able to collect something like 20 Bitcoin uh, in donations, which is a huge amount of money that could have yeah. provided gas for that trucker convoy for a very long time. Um, and so they were going to distribute their Bitcoins to these truckers, which is like, great. You know, that's the point. We, we collected it for yeah. them. But when it came to actually taking those Bitcoins, those, you know, bytes connected to a cryptocurrency wallet and like taking that and converting it into the diesel fuel that needed to go into their trucks, mm-hmm. everything falls apart. There's no way to yes. do that right now. Yeah, And so in those to, yeah. authoritarian regimes, you know, the, the idea that, you know, someone might be able to put their money into Bitcoin and then escape the, you know, oppressive re- regime as a result, they have to be able to do something with that Bitcoin. And mm. largely today, that's hard to do. It's hard to buy a gallon of milk with your Bitcoins or to yeah. buy a ticket out of the country with your Bitcoins. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's better than losing everything. And you probably could find somebody to give you, you could give the Bitcoin to on a wallet, peer to peer and get cash for 90 cents on the dollar or something like that. Give them some huge vig, they'd probably do it. One thing I've been enamored by uh, is DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous, Autonomous Organizations. organizations. Yes. Yep. Um, because I have an investment syndicate, the syndicate.com where 
we have 9,500 members, they all pool money together, they read a deal memo, and they decide on average to put $7,000 into a startup. We did it with a startup like com.com as an example. Um, and so the idea of having one of these that exists on a global basis, people can put cryptocurrency into it, and they could invest in 100 businesses, maybe they were female led businesses or environmentally conscious businesses, whatever the the theme is that people wanted to support. And then they could vote on it and have some sort of structure. Do you think DAOs because there have been some scammy ones, obviously, these new platforms seem to draw grifters <laughs> for some reason. But do you think that fundamentally, an organization that could vote on investments or what to do with the money and exist in the cloud? you know, through smart contracts, etc, is a bad idea or just one that doesn't require this type of technology? How, how do you think about DAOs? DAOs are a great example of what I was saying earlier in that a lot of the ideas here are pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm into the idea of decentralized communities and, you know, voting and, you know, controlling the future of the community from the community. I've been about that practically my whole life. I think that's great. I do not see where smart contracts are required, where blockchains are required. Uh, it seems like the downfalls of a lot of these DAOs have been because of those smart contracts and those blockchains. That's and, actually true. You know, Explain that to the audience. So, you know, when you have a DAO, you are basically saying, uh, buy this token. And I mean, this is a generalization. Not all of them work this way, caveat, asterisk, but often cases, uh, you say, buy this token, and this token represents one vote in our community. Uh, and through that, you can control everything in the community. And we saw recently how someone actually used that to take over the community, uh, because they were able to get enough votes and uh, basically divert enough attention from their proposal that was trying to pass to say, I'm the leader now, I have total control over this DAO. And because it was on the smart contract, uh, you know, there was, it was codified, codified. Um, as soon as they it got was enough both votes. both codified and codified. Both <laughs> yes. of those. Uh, as soon as they got enough votes, but I'm bumped. it was over. Yeah. They were the owner and they drained the treasury. They took all the money and everyone was sort of left in the lurch. Um, right. This is, this is a classic 51% attack. Yeah. Precisely. And, and compare that to, for example, the communities that you're talking about in which Wikipedia users or Redditors or open source software developers have decentralization, lots of autonomy and votes, and they didn't need to buy a token to get it. Right. And it's, I won't pretend it's an easy problem. Community led mm -hmm. communities, you know, self-governing communities are extremely difficult. Yeah. And trying to take those rules and those ways that those communities work uh, and turn it into smart contracts and put everything into code is impossible. And that's mm. kind of what's happening in a lot of Web3 projects is this idea that you can take social problems, like the difficulty of community governance, and solve it with these smart contracts. And that is almost always not the case. And you almost mm -hmm. always shoot yourself in the foot trying to do that. So governance is messy. <laughs> Newsflash <laughs> to messy. people who believe yeah. they can wave the magic web three wand and solve humanity's biggest problems. But to explain the 51% attack, it's very interesting, because let's say you have $10 million sitting there, you got some whales got a billion dollars in crypto, they come in, and uh, they need to have whatever 60% of the votes, they put 30 million, they buy $30 million worth of tokens. Now they have 75% of the votes. 
And then they sweep that 10 million from the original folks in it. They have no recourse because somebody came in just over the top and it's like a hostile takeover of a company, except Precisely. in hostile takeovers, there's a process and you would, you know, it would, it would be much harder to do with a public company, let's say. Um, right. Because you, but I think in this case, actually, it's a little interesting and I haven't been able to get too much clarity on exactly how this happened. I'm not actually sure if the t- attacker here had to buy or, you know, basically obtain 51% of the tokens here. Because there's a very common issue with DAOs, which is that if you don't have enough participation in a vote, it's very ah. easy to control that. You don't need the 51% of all the tokens. Right. You can because just people, just, people yeah. aren't paying attention. Yeah, people aren't basically. paying attention. If they yeah. aren't voting against you, uh, then the vote passes. And on the, on the flip mm. side, if you try to say, well, that's not possible because we're going to make it so everyone has to vote. That doesn't work very well either, because what if they're, you know, up in the mountains somewhere away from their phone? Are they going to hold up the whole vote? What if somebody dies? Like, that's something that a lot of these DAOs haven't taken into account is like, if you want to have these tokens, there's a set amount of them. And then someone dies, who takes their tokens and starts voting Mm. for them? There's no succession plan there. It's like a low turnout election. Like we, everybody's like, how did Chesa Budin get into office? And it was like, well, that happened to be one of the low turnout elections, I believe. And that maybe that wouldn't have happened in a high turnout election. You get some weird behaviors that can occur. I mean, it's, you know, I think it's like it comes down to when we think about how we evaluate a company, right? Or the the, like when I think about storytelling with a company, like there are some there are questions you should be able to answer at some point in the in the life of your product. And those companies are how does it work? What is it good for? And how does it make money? And if and I think the sense is that if we're like this far along into this operation and every time we say, how does this work? How is it better? All you get is a toxic brigade Mm. and you have an entire blog blogs worth, right? Media properties worth of scams and grifts and failures. That these are fair questions, more than fair questions to be asking. Yeah. And I think in traditional technologies, people who are operating in good faith, who believe in the technology, who want the technology to succeed, embrace skepticism and criticism and questions because that's how technologies improve. And yet that seems completely, you know, forbidden uh, with a lot of these projects. I I am a big fan of the um, story of Enron, the conversation that kicked off the downfall of Enron way, way, way back in the day was this fortune reporter, Bethany McLean, who was going around asking investors and people at Enron, how does this company make money? Like she just was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask the dumb question here. How do you guys make money? Seems like there's a lot like a lot. Wrote an entire piece for Fortune about the fact that no one could answer that question. And that was it, right? And it led to this like massive downfall that turned out to just be a complete grift at the heart of it. And so like you know, I, I am, yes, I am pre-answering all of the tweets that we're going to get as a result <laughs> of this that's conversation. The, yeah, the but, brigading is, yeah. But this is just that simple, right? Mm. How is it better? How does it make money? Who is it good for? And if you can come up with a good answer for that, like there, I, when I hear all the objections to the DAOs, I look at them as a technologist, as an entrepreneur, as an investor, mm-hmm. and I say, okay, yeah, that's a good one. Um, how do you deal with death? Okay. If the person doesn't respond over this many times to this many votes, their vote go, you know, the vote is removed and they have this ability to, and they have to put in, you know, a secession plan. So in order to be part of this DAO, you have to have three secession plans 
or you have to pre-vote for certain things, or, you know, you, you could come up with some rule system there. Um, you know, kind of like you do in any technology company. So I do feel there's there could be something there still with the DAOs, but not in the way they're currently constructed. Like I think that's the there's this weird philosophy, and I think it's perpetuated by the grifters imitating the early true believers, because the early true believers were libertarian type people, in some case anarchists. I, I mean, I met them. I had them on this podcast in 2009, 2010, the mm -hmm. early Bitcoin folks when it was under a dollar. Like they were really those weird people who don't believe in like, there shouldn't be speed limits. There shouldn't be insurance for cars. There shouldn't, you know. And I, Sovereign I'm citizens. Saying, <laughs> Sovereign they citizens. Have that, these are the people who want to make a C state, exactly. you know, like they want to have a, a tax-free right. autonomous C state, right? So they're interesting people to have dinner with. I mean, you know, maybe not twice a week, but, you know, twice a year. Um, and they might have some interesting ideas, make you think, hey, yeah, maybe there shouldn't be a speed limit. Uh, yeah, no, there should be. Um, they seem to have like that knucklehead who was like, yeah, you got to be toxic or you don't believe in freedom. They seem to be like parroting that gestalt and that philosophy, but they don't actually have that belief themselves. So that's why it comes out as so toxic or weird. Untrustworthy. Or I untrustworthy. That's exactly right, actually. Like there is, in order to believe in like, pure decentralization or pure immutability, you know, with no exceptions, with like no centralization, no ability to remove things, you have to be pretty extreme. Like you have to be willing to say, yes, that's okay to some really bad things. And so, you know, the, the, the true believers, as you put it, a lot of them are willing to make those trade-offs. And like you said, they come off pretty extreme and a little bit weird. And like most people are like, well, we do live in a society where that's not acceptable. Um, but like, yeah, mm -hmm. good for them. You know, they have strong beliefs. They hold to them. But I think some of them were anarchists, you know, um, right, it, right. it was libertarians and anarchists, you know, and less government people, yeah, you know, definitely. live free or die people, you know. <laughs> yes. Um, but like, I think the people who are sort of trying to parrot that are, you know, fairly probably reasonable people in a lot of ways and sort of understand that like pure decentralization and pure immutability has some serious, serious problems. And so when they're mm -hmm. confronted with that, they have to say, well, maybe a little centralization, maybe just a little bit of deletion. And then everything sort of falls apart because it's like, why do you yeah. want a blockchain then? You know, yeah. uh, that's and I think that's great... sort of a problem. It's literally like the conversation I keep having with my kid about communism, right? There's theory in there. <laughs> like, it only works if you've got like 11 people. After that, you got to start to have some stratification and there start to be hierarchies well, and it, you know, yeah. If, if you go through the thought Scale. process, the people who came up with the immutable blockchain, if you said, hey, what if people got doxxed, you know, and you put people's home addresses on a blockchain and you couldn't delete it, they would say, okay, you know, like, I don't right. have an issue with that. Whereas anybody who's reasonable would be like, wait, wait, you because the same crypto people who want an immutable blockchain are unwilling to say that I'm the founder of, you know, Angry Lions, Bored Apes, whatever, you know, whoever they claim they were doxxed, you know, like, oh, my God, you know, we were doxxed as the creators of Bored Apes. It's like, it's a billion dollar franchise you're raising at $5 billion from injuries and Horowitz reportedly. Your names your, are, your names are going to be on corporate papers somewhere. Like, <laughs> yeah, so you leave your name on it. Yeah, yeah, you, you can't not have your name on it in America. Like you can't be an anonymous officer of a company. That's not how the world works. 
but they yeah, want the an immutable blockchain. Of the word doxed in the crypto community, I I could go on for probably an hour yeah. about that alone. No, well, go <laughs> on for go on for a minute. Go on for uh, a yeah. minute because this go is on, a, please I go mean, on for so a minute because I think it's a pretty there's hilarious. There's so much one. complaining about you know it's like live free, do whatever the hell you want with zero consequence, kill anybody who disagrees with you, but then get mad when people don't like that. I yeah, have security seems. concerns because I own so many NFTs. It's like because I am so wealthy. Yes, um, <laughs> so well, so get security, well. dummy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. the the idea of doxing in like the broader internet context, it's not a new word. It's not new to Web three. It's not new to crypto. Uh, is that you know someone publishes your home address or you know very personal information about you? They take pictures of you without your consent. And they put them up. You know, they there's it's a very serious, egregious piece of harassment. It's happened to me. It's awful. It's terrible. Me too. Um, and but within the crypto world. Doxing is a good thing for some for a lot of these things. They advertise that they're fully doxed. And it's like, when I first saw that, I was like, excuse me, you're what now? And it what it often means within the crypto community is, oh, our founders aren't anonymous. So we know that it's Joe Schmo running lions, whatever. Um, and that means that's mm. doxing. And so I was like, okay, weird to use the word in a totally different way, but go for it. But then there was this whole thing with the Bored Apes where they were not fully doxxed. They were anonymous. No one knew who they were uh, until a wonderful reporter at BuzzFeed did a little bit of digging. Not that much. It was public information, business records. She called up the company and they confirmed that these were indeed the real identities of their anonymous founders. And so she published an article about that. Did not contain their home addresses. It did not contain much information about them at all. Honestly, she went a little bit into like publicly available information about these people, but it was not, you know, this is their date of birth and their social security number and they live at, you know, this address and go knock on their door. Um, mm -hmm. And then suddenly a lot of people, including very respected people in this crypto community, absolutely lost their minds and were like, she doxed them and they were using doxed in the traditional meaning of the word the in actual that it's definition this, right yeah, yeah. The, the, right. the actual the real, definition like, yes targeted harassment <laughs> reality in, in yeah. reality yes. what doxing yes. means yes you know basically said that she's this terrible person and they started to they started to basically dox her in a way they started to oh, say fantastic. this is her parents address maybe you should go knock on their door and it was this un it was like are we living in is like what is happening right now every words don't have meaning um someone took well, a childhood photo of her and made an NFT out of it. And that person is currently listed prominently on Andrew Yang's Web3 lobbying uh, website right now, because apparently yeah. there's just no consequences for harassment in these communities. And this, uh, honestly, I think this gets to the other point, which is like, even if you could answer my simple questions, what is this good for? Why is it better than what currently exists? You know, how do you make money and who benefits? I, I don't understand why I should have to listen to any of those arguments if that's how this community behaves. Like this sense that not only is there no accountability, but there shouldn't be. And P.S. You and me, the Mollies, are the ones who are wrong here is, I think, also what's baffling. Like the total lack of like, are these all toddlers? The total lack of awareness of the concept that like if you are an asshole, people yeah. won't want to do business with you. And that mm. is a natural consequence, by the way. That's not anybody being unreasonable. Like, yeah. it, that never gets through. There still is just this sort of like profound, like, you know, you got to brigade. You got to be toxic. That's the way to get this through. 
And I would argue that as a matter of business and humanity, that's actually not that effective. Yeah, bad strategy. It's a bad strategy. So even if they even if the answers were all there, I still wouldn't want to do business with a lot of these people because like they're dicks. I got well, actually when Don't you be ask, a dick. are they toddlers? I think a lot of them actually are very very young. Um, yeah. I yeah, have fair. talked to a few people who like do know the identities of people behind projects, and it's like, and that person is nineteen years old, and he's controlling. Yes. $2 million. Right. It's like, what? <laughs> right. And nuance and subtlety has not set in at that age. I'm just, it's neurologically true. Science. Yeah. Fr- yeah frontal lobe <laughs> still developing. And yeah, I, uh, I just checked my dashboard. <laughs> it turns out 21% of Web3 participants are incels on subreddits <laughs> right now. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear who this audience, who that toxic group is. And again, I don't think it's the entirety of it, but there is a group that's toxic. And actually, after that toxic clip, in fairness to a lot of the Bitcoin folks, they were like, no, 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 no. We don't want this toxic. We want Warren Buffett to buy Bitcoin right. and hold it. We want, you know, Jack and Square to be buying it. We, we want more participation because, you know, the cynical version of more participation is, you know, uh, more bag holders and mm-hmm. the charitable one and, and a, a completely legitimate one is network effects. If everybody had Bitcoin, then the idea that you could, you know, buy gasoline with it would actually come to pass. If everybody had Bitcoin on their phone right now, yeah, sure, people would QR code and swipe it and, and, and pay for things with Bitcoin. Just hasn't reached that critical mass that anybody with uh, on the purchasing side needs to. But I think Jack with Square will, if every Square device allowed you to transact in different cryptocurrencies then when you went to phil's coffee and you swiped a square it could give you the option to do it in bitcoin or not yeah Yeah. and i mean i will say you know i don't think it's fair to take an entire community and sort of define it by the actions of the worst people in it no Um, not at all but they are the loudest and it does do damage and jack for example would do well to acknowledge that exactly that's what i was just about to say is that any community encounters that problem. You know, you see yeah. it with political parties, you see it with uh, activist groups, you see it all over the place. Every community has bad apples, but it is the responsibility of the other people in that community who want to be taken seriously and who want to, you know, define the future to get those people out of their community and say, no, what you're doing is not okay. And within the crypto community, there is not a lot of that. Uh, there is a lot of, oh, well, we just won't deal with them and we'll do our own project over here. But there's not a lot of people who show up when some crypto bro is in your community telling you how or in your in your Twitter replies, you know, telling you how awful you are to say, hey, cut that out. That that just doesn't seem to happen very much. Yeah. Yeah. The the self-policing is critically important. And that's something where I think the crypto community can do so much better, do better, um, be best. But I mean, I mean it, it, it really is holding themselves the back. Community. It's, it's, like now I'm just making it worse for myself. But there's there's a lot of it's like the Venn diagrams. You know, there are crossovers. This has been an effective technique for lots of things on Twitter to just yes. sort of like sure, chase all, naysayers the right. away. The all the right. right. The like set, Tesla fanboys, crypto uh, cancel culture on the left. It's uh, fanboy, right? Yeah. It, at the end of the day, it's fanboy. Like I remember this happening way back when it would be like Xbox versus PlayStation. Like, yes. But it has worked on the internet and there has not been a lot of accountability for it. And so it's become a, a popular, I would argue, technique. And yeah. because of a lot of the proponents of cryptocurrency are young white men, and this isn't like a real problem for them. I don't think, I even think that Jack is like sort of a couple steps removed from the concept 
that that toxicity can do harm or the reality of it. Yeah. I mean, you see that a lot with a lot of these, these sort of high profile people. Elon Musk, you know, for example, seems to have sort of no understanding that what he says on Twitter actually has like real impacts on people. Um, it's just a game, you know, and I, I think yeah. people don't realize that. Yeah. The brigading is a serious issue and it's, uh, people have accused me of it and I'm like, I, I, my people don't brigade. I mean, you might get a couple of people who agree, a couple of people who disagree. I, I think is there's something like in, in the scale of this that also becomes, although people are saying that my, some of my followers are doing it more often now because I've, my follower count has gotten a little bit higher since all in podcast on top of this week in startups started to get popular. So I don't know. How am I supposed to deal with that, Molly? How am I, am I supposed to just admonish them when they do it consistently? Yes, definitely. Um, yeah. I gotta, <laughs> if you like, I don't want to, I mean, you get the audience that you cultivate or that you allow, right? So if you- But with 500,000 people, Molly, if 1% are mentally ill, like severely mentally ill and 10% are cantankerous, you know, it starts to become a law of big numbers, I think. Like, I know I have mentally ill followers. Like, I, if it, just message to my followers. There's if like anybody a, does something can, stupid like that, please DM me and show, show me the tweets so I can go admonish them and right. block them from following me. But also, I mean, let's be careful with our broad brush of mental illness, right? Like some of them might just be jerks. And right. you can oh, agree, be mentally ill and yeah. also still be a nice person on the internet. Like, yeah. And I think also that there is a response. I mean, we've sort of can cultivate a little empathy. bit from yeah. Web3 here. It's in, into just social media problems in general. But I do think there is a responsibility as someone has hundreds of thousands of followers or something like that to be very careful in, in what they do. Um, and so, you know, it's something I've had to account with a little bit as I've gotten a couple more followers recently, where it's like, now, if I retweet that 200 person, you know, 200 follower account that said something dumb and I dunk on them, like, suddenly a lot of people are seeing that and are joining in mm. and are in that person's replies and they're saying, right. yeah, that, that was a stupid thing you said. I'm like, that feels kind of bad. Um, so I think you do have to be, you know, conscious of that. And then, yeah, I think what Molly said is you do have to say, you know, when one of your followers says something awful, you know, jump in there and say, no, 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 that's not mm -hmm. acceptable, you know, and, and go on. Yeah, it, it definitely is. When you get the follower account going up, you have to think, like uh, I got into a little back and forth with a journalist, I don't know, two nights ago about like the pandemic ending and they're like pandemic's not over. And I dunked on her, she dunked on me. And then all of a sudden we basically brigaded each other became like a civil war where all the people who believe there's still like a crazy pandemic. And then all the people who are like, listen, it's an endemic. We're just personally attacking her and personally attacking me. And then another journalist, I probably journalist just like, the two of you just need to stop because you yeah, have a you difference need to of text opinion. Each other. Exactly. Like, well, instead of putting uh, it on Twitter. <laughs> well, you, well, exactly. It's like, I, I, it's, but that was kind of the magic of Twitter was we could publicly debate. But I think yeah. it's like, I kind of feel like that magic moment is over. And that's, I'm just gonna have debates on the pod from now on. It's over. And it's sad. Honestly, though, I mean, but I, it's better. It, on, yes. Don't you think Molly, the solution is podcasts? I mean, we're going on a little tangent here. But I feel like on podcasts, even when you disagree with somebody, at least it can be more thoughtful and less brigadish. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look, arguing with a, a series of words on your screen <laughs> is never yes. going to like, you're not going to interpret it well and you're not going to respond to it well. But I do think it's good to point out that like, even though it feels like we have diverged a little bit from, from our original conversation and we sort of have, we also kind of haven't because crypto is fundamentally uh, like a social media phenomenon mm. in addition to all of the other things that it is. So like, the culture around it kind of can't be separated from the business at this point, right? Mm. Right. 
Yeah, I, it's if, kind of if the Twitter rouse. didn't exist, if Discord didn't exist, if Reddit didn't exist, then I don't think crypto would be half as popular as it is. Yeah. All right, Molly listen. Molly White, the blog Molly is White. amazing. The Twitter awesome. feed is amazing. You're doing God's work out here, and we <laughs> will endeavor to protect you on the internet whenever we can. <laughs> and? And, uh, and I think it's great that there's somebody who is a backstop against the grifts because I do think there's some reasonable technologies here and some people with great intent. And for people who are like, oh, it's, it's, it's too much criticism. If somebody consolidates all the criticism, when you're being criticized, it's an opportunity to learn and to plug weaknesses in your industry. And you want to police yourself, not be policed by government agencies. So Molly White, what you're doing here actually is a mitzvah for those people because now they can just look at the website and say, you know what? Yeah, we need to not do wash trading. Yeah, we need to figure out a solution to block wash trading. Oh yeah, we need to have something for DAOs that fixes this problem. So I encourage people to look at this as the change log, the bug list, you know, what to fix next, which is what company became when my friend Phil Kaplan started it. There was a lot of criticism, but it was like, hey, you're treating your employees really bad. You just laid off a bunch of people with no notice. There was like all kinds of bad behavior that occurred. And it basically became like an HR masterclass and a, and a, and a management masterclass because it wasn't about grifting back then. It was more like how we treated people and customers and employees and partners. And it was like, hey, here's how to do better. So I, 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 I think people should, if they're in the industry, actually cherish what you're doing. Um, I certainly would if somebody told me here's how to be a better podcaster, I'd be like, great, thanks. You know, so yeah. I, I look at it as a very constructive project. Um, I hope people take it that up, way. I have had if people you end you up know, accidentally saving it from itself. That will be <laughs> potentially that will be the a good true when I enable Web3. <laughs> it really will be. <laughs> well, you, you said people have to actually express this to you, Molly White. Yeah, I have a bunch of people who follow the site who themselves work in uh, and on web three projects who, who, you know, are taking it as like, wow, yeah, we do need to, to make some changes here. And I think that's great. I mean, I don't, I don't personally have much hope for web three. Um, but I am, I'm glad that there are people within that community who are, who are receptive to feedback and who are questioning their own beliefs and who are willing to see that, you know, it's not the, the perfect example of, you know, the, the technology of the future. I noticed you link at the end of the stories uh, to the tweet threads, which is great. It's like great in a lot of case resources. Have you thought about putting a comment thread there? Because that's when company really exploded is they had, they had threads and you could have a debate about that. And it, it also got out of control. Girl, don't do right. it. I know. I'm like, don't yeah. do it. Yeah, I, I actually had someone bring that up yesterday uh, to me. And there is, I don't know if you could pay me to put comments on that website. <laughs> The, the, um, the pointing yeah. people to the thread on Twitter is a power move. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's been sort of my it. compromise is like, if you want to discuss this, go over to Twitter where I can block you if I have to. Um, but I don't feel like becoming a community moder moderator in any way. Yeah. So much upside in hosting those discussions. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Thank Thanks, Molly White. Thank Thanks, you. Molly White. Hey, everyone. Producer Nick here. I want to tell you about the SaaS Syndicate. If you're a founder of a SaaS company with a product and market, our investment team wants to talk to you. Head over to thesyndicate.com slash SaaS, S-A-A-S, to apply to raise from the SaaS syndicate. And you can join Jason's syndicate of over 9,000 accredited investors at thesyndicate.com. Producer Justin here. No cool startup? 
check out openscouting.com where anyone can refer a startup to our investment team here at launch. Even if you don't know the founder, if you're the first to flag a company for us and we decide to invest, you'll get 5K in cash or 10% of our carry. Hey everybody, producer Rachel here. Are you an early stage startup that has product and market, some traction, and are looking to raise at least $500,000? Apply today to Remote Demo Day for your chance to pitch to over 9,000 investors in Jason's syndicate. Submit your application at remotedemoday.com. Our next event is on April 27th. And if you want to learn how to invest in startups from the world's greatest angel investor, and no, we're not talking about Chris Saka, then head to angel.university to apply. The four-hour workshop costs $300 and all proceeds are donated to charity. To date, we've donated over $175,000 to various charities, and you can see the full list at angel.university slash charity. 